Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Hollywood Wolfpack with Kaya Alexander. Featuring in-depth interviews and insights with professionals in the entertainment business. Get everything you need to navigate your above-the-line career right here. This podcast is often recorded live in front of Kaya students in the Entertainment Business School. You can find out more at entertainmentbusinessschool.com. Hollywood Wolfpack is the new face of entertainment business wisdom. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Kaya Alexander. I am here today with my very special guest, Alexa Alamani. Am I saying your last name right? Am I saying your surname right? That is correct. Yes, Alexa Alamani is with us. She started as an actor, most known for playing Allison on Mad Men, for which she won a SAG Award. In TV, she's staffed on TNT's The Librarians and sold a pilot, Mansfield Park, to Tornant Media. In features, she wrote the adaptations of Something Blue for Black Label and Serpent's Bite for Grey Eagle. She sold her own original I Won't Be Home for Christmas to UCP and optioned two other features to Level Forward and Balcony 9. Alexa is an assistant adjunct professor at USC and she runs Bad Pitch Writers Lab. She is a graduate of Vassar College. Alexa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. So it is Thursday, July 13th. And moments ago, you guys, before I got on the show here with Alexa, SAG, and after I have announced their strike, uh, it is historic. It hasn't happened in 63 years. How are you feeling about it right now, Alexa? They did. And I'm so glad they did. I started as an actor. I am still a proud member of SAG. I have a lot of friends who are actors and I've watched what has changed in the past, you know, five to seven years and the living that I was able to make when I first started. Um, I was a recurring guest on a show for a couple of seasons. Um, that living on a streamer is gone. And um, I think Fran did an excellent job today of really distilling it down that the industry has changed and our contracts have not. And I'm um, really glad uh, to see a, her so fired up and like as a child of the 90s. Go, girl. As a child of the 90s, I was like, this is fun. Um, and also, I just I think that uh, it was a spot on messaging. And um, I'm excited for, for all of my friends to join us on the picket lines. Yes. Good. You're in the WGA as well, right? I am. I am. I've been out there for, we're on day 70 whatever I've lost track 70 something <laughs> 70 it's been a long time and it's only getting hotter summer yes. um, writers have been really fired up I've been on the picket one day I'm down here in San Diego but I've gotten up to Los Angeles of course I am retweeting everybody like mad following folks on Twitter supporting the entertainment business fund how's the vibe out there how are you feeling 
Well, I'll tell you, um, it's hot, and uh, but I will say that they are. Everybody on the line is super passionate. I think I was here for 2007. I was only an actor at the time. Oh, um, actors are great. Um, but uh, I think a lot of the messaging this time around is just really resonating with everybody, whether you're a writer or an actor, because what we're talking about is very real and very visceral and affecting people's everyday lives. Um, you know, 2007, 2008, we were talking about the potential of streaming or the fear of what could come. And this is literally like, we can't make a living anymore. The business has fundamentally changed. Our contracts need to meet that. And I think that energy um, is keeping the lines really alive. And then, you know, when whenever you want, um, you know, someone will post, uh, we'll get like a lovely quote and deadline that they, you know, want to see us lose our homes. And that usually fires people right back up again. <laughs> so we've been, we've been holding strong. Oh my God, that article was insane. We would love to starve them out. We will see them lose their apartments and homes. We're here to wait. It was awful. It was really an egregious uh, article. I don't know who those studio execs were that were on background for that, uh, but it was absolutely shocking. And I, you know, I have a lot of friends that are development executives and I have great relationships with a lot of them. And I think there's a lot of creative people out there that, um, a hundred percent have everybody's back. And I think it feels very different than 2007. And I think a lot of the country very much has, you know, labors back on this. I think it's again, a very different time. You're absolutely right. I mean, back in 2007, streaming was like this little bitty guppy in the fishbowl and we've just all fed it. Now we're like, oh, it turned out to be a whale shark. Like it's taken over and eaten everything. And it's time for all of these relationships to be redefined. So thank you so much for coming on the show today at this really critical moment in the industry. What are you personally most passionate about with these issues? You know, um, I... Well, a lot of things. I've, I've been primarily a feature writer. I started in television. I was very lucky to get staffed. Um, I guess my journey's pretty interesting, and I, I tell my students about this a lot, but when I first started as a writer, it was at a time that still is a little bit of what a lot of writers talk about, like the old guard or how things used to be. And, uh, you know, I remember our first script that I work with a writing partner and our first script that went out and around town, um, our manager at the time, she was like, look, here's the deal. Like, you're only going to have to do this one time. You're just going to go in. You might develop something for free, but it's just the one time. Then once your career takes off, you don't have to worry about it. And, uh, and we had like a pretty good run for a little bit. And then things started to change. And I remember thinking, like, what are we doing wrong? Um, I'm a perfectionist. Um, I'm a high achiever. So from my perspective, it was like, what are we not doing? What are we not doing? And one of the things that I've experienced on the line is hearing so many stories from other writers about how much it has changed, um, and not feeling alone in how much it's changed. And that's been really reassuring to me. So as a feature writer, I think that second step is insanely important. I really hope we hold our ground on that. Um, I've worked with great executives, but the things that I've been asked to do for free, the list has grown longer and longer and longer and longer. And the fear is if I don't do it, someone else will. All the time, and, uh, the time frames too, right? 
timeframes. And, you know, they think we don't, we don't like being on strike for four months. It's like, well, I've waited for business affairs to close a contract for six months. So like, I'm good. Uh, You know, and on the TV side, I think those short orders, it's really, it's really hard to move up and uh, television works because you get trained on set. I was so lucky. I came up under John Rogers and he was a fantastic showrunner. And from day one, he told us, you are producing your episode. You are on set. You are going to learn. And I'm so, so grateful. And it's heartbreaking to me to see these young writers that go into these mini rooms and don't get that experience because it's transformative and it's how television works. It's how good television gets made. And it it just doesn't make any sense to me that they're shooting themselves in the foot. It's almost like if you're a baker and you have this fantastic recipe and you make this amazing cake that everyone loves and everyone wants to buy. And then you're like, oh, but now I'm going to go cut all the corners and start taking ingredients out of the recipe. That's the cake that everybody loves and change it, change it, change it. And it's like soon it's not going to be the cake that anyone wants to eat anymore. You know, losing all of that. Um the elements that go into it for the writers personally, this is, it's important for my listeners to understand that we're not talking about luxury here. It's not like, oh, it's so luxurious for the writers to get to go into be on set or work in editing to see it's all about all of this goes into constructing every episode of television. Can you speak a little bit more about your personal experience um, in that type of writer's room where you got set experience and got to be in the editing bay? You know, I think the thing that's so important about it is that you realize, um, and I think John said this to us very early, how much television is really like independent film. And that what you're writing on the page gets plugged into a budget that has to exist for the whole year of that season. And it's divided up and we can't use that location. So we got to turn it around and think fast. And where else could the scene be? And do the retyping and casting's coming in. Location is coming in. And it's just this machine. You're running a a massive corporation, essentially. And, uh, And so to see how all those pieces connect is so valuable because, A, it makes you a better writer. And then eventually it also trains you to be able to continue to like step up and help the people above you to run a really efficient ship, um, which is what when good television works, uh, it should be. Are you a set person? Do you love being on set? I mean, I always, I mean, I came up, I learned to write on Mad Men as an actor. Mm. Um, I'm so grateful for my time there. I didn't go to school for it. So I'm entirely self-taught, but I was in every table read and I would follow those writers around um, when they were on set and ask them questions. Yeah, I totally totally was. Uh, One of the writers, Marie Jacquetan, she teaches at USC now. And so we get to like sit around and and gossip about our old school days. But that's how I learned to write because they were always present and their presence in table reads, their presence on set. Like it was absolutely vital to the running of what was a fantastic show. Can you give us an example of something that you learned from that experience that helped shape your writing today? Um, I remember there was an episode, uh, we did the episode, um, where, uh, JFK dies. Um, and there was a very big moment where uh, it was, a fa- I wish I could remember his name. It was a fantastic director who was directing the episode. Um, but there was this moment where everybody races into the room to look at the television screen. That's like announcing the news of Kennedy's death. 
And there was this general sense, like consensus, the air conditioning was supposed to be broken that day um, in the in the set. So everybody had to be sweaty and makeup was trying to figure out like how sweaty to make people. And there's just this sense of like, how upset are they? Who's upset? Who's not upset? Like how does a major corporation and people that work in that advertising agency feel about Kennedy? And it was just one of those things where a writer just swooped in and was like, okay, this is what we think. This is what's going on. This is where you are. This is where you are. This is how you feel about it. This is what's happening. Does that make sense to everybody? We're like, yeah, good. And the director was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And then we all went and shot the scene. But it's just their presence uh, is the thread that holds together a storyline on television. And I think an average audience member maybe doesn't really understand how vital writers are to that. Yeah, I don't think that they really do because, you know, those who are just um, who are not in the industry, who are watching shows are probably thinking of the actors. You know, they're paying attention to the talent that they like to see on screen without without really realizing what goes into it. Um, My mom is a big NCIS Hawaii fan, and I have a couple friends who write on the show, and it's been really fun, you know, sitting with her and be like, oh, mom, you know, my friend Noah wrote this episode, and look, there's his name, and she's just like, now she's thinking, oh, right, the writers who are part of, you know, this show and the decisions they've made, and it's been fun to see see those lights get turned on, and I think that they are, you know, she comes to me and says, Hey, Whoopi Goldberg is talking about the writers on The View and how they can't, you know, write these up. They can't do their episodes to the degree they want to because they don't have the writers. And it's good that it's penetrating to the mainstream more because I feel like there's been a little bit of a media blackout about really talking about what's happening. But hopefully the SAG after energy now on the picket with 160 thousand members worldwide is just going to totally infuse this global movement. You know, it's an exciting time. I think it's going to make a huge difference. And, you know, I mean, writers are shy and writers are quiet and writers stay on the sidelines. But I I challenge my USC students when I ask them, like, what their favorite show is, you know, and they'll say The Night Agent. And I'm like, cool, you shouldn't say The Night Agent. You should say Sean Ryan's The Night Agent. (laughs) start learning to like associate shows with the writer creators of those shows and let those names kind of become as commonplace as Greta Gerwig or Christopher Nolan or whoever it might be to let those writers names just become a part of your lexicon. Absolutely. And to be a student of the industry that way, I love that because then you're triangulating it off of IMDb and other places to determine who the path that those people took in their careers that brought them uh, to where they are. I'm always so interested in origin stories, you know, the writer and me going, oh, where did you come from? You know, going, doing my little research and figuring it out. And I've made some wonderful connections that way. I'm always encouraging my students to do that too, because when you're informed and then you get a chance to meet that person, shake their hand, you can really connect with them about their journey, about what they've worked on, about what was meaningful and impactful to you. And I know of a couple students who've been hired because they were able to tell the showrunner, you are the reason I'm working in TV. It was your work on this and this and that. And I've watched you go from here to there. And it's always so impressive to meet someone who knows the arc of your career. It's so, it's so important. And I always say like my rule, and I, I, I always say like, I get to, t- I teach at USC, so I get to say this, but there's a free university out there, which is movies and television and, you know, $25 a month, four hours a week. And you can become like a well-versed understander of the industry, you know, sign up for AMC Stubbs, 
watch the Friday movie release and watch the two new pilots that come out every Sunday. If you don't like them, move on. And if you love them, put it on your personal time. But if you just do that, your knowledge of who is doing what and why it's working and why it's selling, it'll just skyrocket. Totally. I was just sprinkling a little Turner classic movies and uh, (laughs) and go backwards. I'm always feeling like, oh my God, I've, you know, there are so many movies that I have not yet seen. And I leave it on in the background, my office, whenever I'm working so that if I'm getting up, you know, to go grab a snack, I'm like, oh, but I haven't seen this film and I'll sit down and I'll watch it. Uh, And then it's just such a a wonderful eye-opening view into, oh, that director or this, you know, particular actor's career arc of where they began. You know, it's a, it's exciting to be part of something that is historic that has such roots that started in the United States that has been going for over a hundred years. And we, you know, we all get to contribute, you know, to this amazing art form uh, over the course of time that will outlive all of us. It's a really beautiful thing. Um, okay. So you have been writing features where has, has streaming shifted your focus on what you're writing, what your focus is, or ha- have you thought about going back into television? I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, we, I, I, again, I work with a writing partner. We are always looking for our way back into television. Um, we have a generally, um, lighter tone and there was a period of, uh, peak TV that, um, was not that. (laughs) And, uh, I, I will say sort of the rise of the dramedy in the half hour streaming space, you know, whether that's like Minx or Shrinking, um, you know, a lot of the bear, right? Like those shows I think have really kicked open the door for some tonally different approaches that aren't just, you know, HBO or I should say max, now content, um, versus, you know, something significantly lighter. So I think we're kind of focused on finding our way back into television, but I I've always liked the sort of singular arcs of features and we've always been attracted to that and we've had a lot of success there. So, um, like most writers, IMDb pages, you know, we've sold things that don't make it to the air. Um, but that's, but that's where, um, we've been lucky to make some really strong relationships. So tell me about that path, because I'm curious what kind of balance it is for you between writing spec scripts and uh, working on open writing assignments. I, well, so I, again, I came as an actor. So what I loved about writing when I first started was that nobody could tell me not to write. (laughs) Um, A lot of acting is waiting for someone to give you permission. Yes. And uh, that was very, very frustrating to me. So when we first started, my writing partner came up through Groundlings. And uh, so he was he was very Groundlings focused. And um, his time at Sunday Company really coincided with right when my arc on Mad Men ended. And so we were both a little depressed. And uh, that's when we started writing together. But a big part of it was like, we can just write and write and write and write and write. So we knocked out so many scripts in those first like three or four years of writing, which really kind of upped our quality level just by putting out so much content as quickly as possible. Um, And so that really kind of made it possible for us to explore different avenues. Like we were able to basically staff and simultaneously get hired on OWAs because we just knocked out so much content so quickly. Um, Our our pace has slowed (laughs) 
<laughs> we're not quite as um, proficient as we were in our early years. Um, but I think that kind of gave us the possibility to do to do both. And ironically, the worlds were pretty connected. You know, our first OWA, uh, you know, was a pretty big job, and they were on the fence about hiring us. And it was actually our co-EP that had done another movie with them from the TV show from librarians that called over and was like, these guys are great and you should hire them. So I think inevitably this business is always built on relationships and uh, the two worlds have kind of bleeded together, you know, more often than not. Yeah. I love that. It is a relationships driven business. Um, How do you help your writers learn that who are coming through your programs who are maybe more introverted and shy It's a really good question because I actually am too. Um, But I think that what we share in common with creative executives, and I say this not speaking of some of the people at the top who have perhaps proven themselves during this strike of not being the biggest fan of movies, Um, but we are all big fans of movies. And, uh, you know, talking to execs and pitching yourself or pitching ideas is, is really just a big game of yes. And, um, it's getting to sit around with other smart, creative people and say like, what excites you and what is unique to you? And that, that usually doesn't feel like as much like a business interview or a job interview as much as it does like, you know, geeking out with your friends about what you're watching on TV. Um, and I think when you think of it that way, it kind of removes a lot of the stress behind it. Um, and then mostly, you know, that you're going to be the biggest seller of your own work. Um, no one will be a bigger fan than you will be. So, you know, tell people why it's great. And it's a lot easier to talk about your work than it is to talk about yourself. Um, I always struggled with that as an actor, like selling myself was always hard but saying, Hey, I wrote this thing and I really believe in it. And let me tell you why it matters and why the story needs to be told. That's easier. I love that. That's really excellent advice because that just puts you right into the passion spot, your sweet spot for, Oh, this is what I'm crazy about. Let me tell you about it without having to worry, you know, about talking about yourself quite as much. I suppose there's always that question that's going to come up there, which is what is your personal connection to this material? (laughs) So you've got to be prepared to talk about it. (laughs) The infamous why me, why now? (laughs) Yeah. But I also think like it's it's really hard to chase the industry and to chase mandates. Um, but I think if you write what you love, I mean, I've I've sold quite a few specs and had quite a few original features optioned, not because it was ever anything that anybody wanted, just because I was like, I really love this. And, you know, the pendulum swings. Um, we sold a Christmas movie to UCP. Uh, I think it was like three, four years ago now it didn't get made. So it, the option reverted back to us. And then it just like went back out right before the strike. And we were like close to closing a deal. Cause who knows people wanted Christmas movies again. Right. So it's just the pendulum swings and you just got to write what you love. And eventually the pendulum will pass right back by whatever it is that excites you. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Do you find that you have to update some of your scripts if the time goes by? You've got to get back in there and go, oh, this isn't so super modern anymore. You know, this is a pre-Black Lives Matter script. You know, now we're in a Black Lives Matter world. What? Do, how do you feel about those passes? 
I go in probably every couple of years and we pull up uh, scripts that maybe have been out of the rounds for a little bit. And we're like, would this hit now? Would it hit better? How could we upgrade it? What could we do? How could we reshape it? Um, we had one of our first features that got us into so many doors, but it never got made. Um, we've just recently, like a year or so ago, picked it back up and said, let's rework this act three. Let's update some stuff. Let's not make it taxis. Let's make it Ubers. Obviously bigger changes than that too, but (laughs) updated a lot of things and got it back out and got it optioned right before the strike. So, um, I think it's just really important. Um, your job is to build up a repertoire of material, Um, it's your, I always talk about it like you're a shoe salesman, which is an odd metaphor, but the idea is that we're craftsmen. Yeah. We belong to a craft union, right? So your job is to have like, not just one glorious shoe that you're convinced is going to change the world because the chance that the one person that fits in that shoe, like that's Cinderella, right? But like, you also don't want to be payless shoe source. So your job is to have like a good, like, you know, boutique store somewhere in like Silver Lake that makes like a nice, diverse range of things that feel like they all belong in the same store. Like that's your job, you know, and then let people come in and update as you need and sell what you can sell. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. My producing partner, Scott Gardenauer, always says it's better to have too many babies than a spoiled baby. <laughs> That's great. I love that. That's great. So if you're just, you know, in love with the one shoe that you have to sell, that like, makes it so much harder, you know, for your for yourself. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey in finding representation as a writer, because it's a question that comes up so often, uh, certainly for my students as well as for my listeners, that how do you break in question, you know, how did you find your manager? What's your story for you and your writing partner? It's such a, it's such an awful question because the answer that you usually get is some version of they'll find you when you're ready. They'll find you. Agents will find you when they have your money. Then they're like, Oh, we heard cash registers ringing over. (laughs) Yeah. But I, but I think it's, you know, everybody's journey is different, but I do think that what is meant by that phrase is that when you've done enough work, And the quality of that work is good enough, which means you've been able to get it in some hands of people that know some people that have given you good feedback and given you good advice that usually that leads to somebody knowing somebody is sort of the long answer to they'll find you. Um, But then everybody has a different path and there's no, you know, guarantee one way or the other. Uh, You know, we got repped um, through acting through my acting agent, actually. She uh, moved companies and we had a script that we had just finished and the company had a lit division and uh, we slipped it over to her. And then that's how it started. And we've been with the same management company. We've changed agents over the years, but we've been with the same management company ever since. And they're fantastic. Oh, amazing. Um, Yeah. So it was a really, you know, I, I would say lucky, but I would also say like, I've heard a million different stories from everybody. I think the best thing that you can do is focus on your content focus on getting great feedback, focus on figuring out who you want those people to be that are giving you that feedback, figuring out who sort of your tribe is, and that that usually will lead towards somebody wanting to give it a read. 
Yeah, I love that. It's solid advice, you know, right? What you love, what you're the most passionate about and, you know, share it far, share it wide, integrate that feedback. And, you know, by the time you know that you're playing at that pro level, people want to help you. It, can you. There's a lot of generous people in this industry where if they like your work, they're like, you know, I really like your work. I want to help you. And that will happen. People are extraordinarily generous. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I've always found that about this business that, you know, if, if you are open to really learning, people just want to help because they love what they do and they love that somebody else wants to learn about it, um, which is which is always, you know, which I think is just fantastic. Well, just I love, love, love what they do. Hey, let's talk marginalized voices for a minute because you have students, I have students, I love Uh, my students who come from all various backgrounds, places in the world, walks of life. And here we are at a time in in the industry where we, the killing of Batgirl, shows being yanked off of streamers that were significant in terms of like LGBTQ representation, BIPOC representation. Let's talk about that and dig into that a little bit. Amongst your students, do you see a rise of marginalized voices within your classroom? I do, 100%. But I think what's unfortunate about what happened two points in the streaming space is that as soon as we opened up, oh, we want more stories or they, you know, the studios and streamers want diversified stories. There's an odd timing that parallels with also shorter episode orders, also no way to move up. Um, And I find that incredibly problematic. While it's fantastic that we have the space and have created the space for those shows, that we're not giving the space for those creators to grow by giving them longer seasons, uh, longer season runs, longer episode orders. It's we're just stalling sort of a, the creation of a generation of future showrunners, which is what we should be doing. Um, and the second point is that I think this industry, especially on the writing side, I would say has c- continued to create more of a barrier of entry over the past couple of years. And I, I have found that very frustrating. Um, it, it's sort of a thing that's been happening on the acting side for a very, very long time where the amount of money that you had to just dump into the business to get started um, was obscene. It's like that that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, between headshots and reels and, you know, uh, go film your own reel and go do this and, um, you know, coaches and things and classes and, you know, $150 to meet a casting director that's existed over there for a long time. And it did kind of create a barrier of entry. And I think what I'd always loved about the writing side was it was like, you can write, Mm. you just write. And I feel like a lot of things are shifting in the direction of making that harder and harder. This requirement of now you have to have a pitch deck for your shows and you have to be a graphic designer or you have to pay a graphic designer a thousand dollars to write a great pitch deck for your pilot. Like all these things to me are making it they're just like continual obstacles. And I think we have to keep pushing them down to keep knocking down those doors because the only way is to create a real ladder where people can rise up so that we don't have a lack of showrunners, right? How do we give them the experience and the opportunities in the room and on set and in support staff to really learn the skills that are necessary to go forward? So I have a, 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 a wealth of students that um, are diverse voices. And I love these stories and they need a place to go. We just have to 
keep knocking down the walls that are preventing them from happening. Right. The financial barrier is huge. I mean, if you have to drop a thousand dollars on a pitch deck for folks uh, who are coming into the industry who don't have privilege or that's their rent, that's your rent for the month. You know, where, how are you going to be able to afford something like that? And then it becomes a completely unsustainable career investment. You know, that's, that's a risk that you're taking. That's not a thousand dollars that you're even guaranteed to get back. That's just money that you light on fire um, and, you know, and hope, and that that's not a sustainable career when we're doing that, especially to our young people coming straight out of school, saddled with student debt, you know, and and all the rest. I I think about it a lot uh, as well, um, because these stories are so interesting to me, and yet we've created an unsustainable um, model, you know, income, actual career. This was a middle-class career for people leading up until recent years. I mean, it's one of the things we're striking about uh, right now, um, which is, it's it's an interesting time. What do you think is going to happen? (laughs) Uh, you you know, I had a theory for a while that one of the legacy companies was going to cave, um, and make a separate deal. Uh, I thought it was going to be Apple until I started hearing some of the horror stories coming out of Apple. And then I was like, Oh, but they were the think different people. I thought they were supposed to think different. Now I'm like, all sad. I mean, honestly, my big hope is CBS or Paramount and CBS and Paramount being the first ones to break, you know, in terms of actual eyeballs that equal dollars, CBS is number two to Netflix. And, uh, but they're only number two because people love their NCIS. And they love their, you know, CSI and they love their Chicago fire. And those shows don't come out in September. Even in terms of audience numbers? Uh, Yeah, actual eyeballs at CBS. Um, Getting us crazy. Nielsen data, huh? Yeah. And, but the thing that's crazy about that, this is what I've always said is the problem with writer strikes versus any other kind of union stoppage is that union stoppages work when there's an immediate consumer effect. Right. right. The federal government steps in when there's going to be a railroad strike or when, you know, um, anything that's going to uh, airport or airplane pilots or whatever it is. It's like if tomorrow it affects the consumer, well, we're going to do something about it because then our stock prices will tank. Then, our you know, the consumers get pissed and like blah, blah, blah. But the problem with pipelines and having material that's been in development or that's been shot or that's ready to go is that it doesn't catch up to the consumer. And I think the studios know that. So my hope was that, you know, when, you know, your average viewer in the middle of the country is like, where the heck is my quantum leap come September? And that that, you know, consumer awareness catches up and maybe one of the legacy companies would break. But I don't know. Um, I think that's, I think it's likely it's what happened with the agents when we split up all the agents and fired all our agents. Yes. Um, but I think the SAG variable is a big variable. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I don't even think I completely comprehend or understand who's going to have to come off the air now, you know, okay, there's a strike and we've got folks who are on the news who have talk shows, you know, how, who's going to be affected, do you know? Well, I think a large percentage, anybody who's a member of the union, um, and a large percentage of, um, their sort of plan their strike contingent plan for fall television is going to be disrupted because of that, because a lot of hosts are SAG members. Um, so it affects, you know, everything. Um, it's p- pretty catastrophic. Plus, you know, you add in the Emmys, you add in film premieres, you add in Comic-Con a week from now. Um, it's pretty dramatic. Um, 
That's what, yeah, but that's what strikes are supposed to be. They're supposed to be disruptive. Well, they they need to be because we're in this industry where the CEOs of the studios are raking in nine figures and buying second yachts and, you know, taking it all to the bank and everybody else can barely survive or is just not surviving or is, you know, having to leave their, their own career and do something else because they can't afford to be in it. So it's a really critical time. Um, Let's talk about AI because AI is also on the ticket for both the writers and the um, the actors, I guess the directors kind of didn't really bat an eye and went ahead and, and signed and plotted forward like we are irreplaceable and we are confident and we are moving onward with our with our contract deal. <laughs> but actors and writers feel significantly more threatened by AI. Um, what are your thoughts on the subject? I, I mean, I think that I think it's a concern on the writing side. I think it's a big concern. I think the technology isn't there yet on the writing side. Um, but I think it's very, very good that we are ahead of it and making it a vital point in this negotiation. Um, on the acting side, I think it's catastrophic. Mm. Um, I have friends that have called their agents with voiceover contracts that, you know, said by signing this, you're giving away your voice in perpetuity for us to do with it. You know what we will like it's, and the thing that came out today about the background workers for SAG, um, which makes up, you know, 40% of their 40, 50% of their union membership. It's horrible. I, I don't know this. Tell me, tell me the stat. Uh, they, uh, one of the proposals from the studios, uh, was to pay background workers a day rate in exchange for their likeness, um, to be used in perpetuity. Ooh, creepy. Uh, going forward. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, it also kills a union. That's, you know, when 40 to 50% of your membership works, you know, daily background, you're killing half the union, you're killing pension health, you're, you know, um, and, and I think that's where the letter from, um, all the celebrities that came out, you know, a couple weeks ago came from and why I find that Netflix allowed that black mirror episode to air. (laughs) So mind blowing because talk about show, don't tell, as a writing technique, right? But uh, let's show you what the world looks like um, when this kind of takes over the industry. And it's, I think it was very terrifying and it made it very real and very visceral, um, especially for actors, I think. I'm going to have to check out that episode. I haven't seen it. Of Black Mirror? Mm-hmm. I, um, I highly recommend, but it's very unnerving. It's very, very unnerving. And it watch Black Mirror because the unnerving is like their hands, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it makes fun of Netflix, which, you know, great for him as the creator. That And I go Netflix for, I guess, letting him do it. But it was just literally like every actor watched that and said, oh, this is my life. Oh, my God. And we can't stand for this. Um, you know, and on the writing side, I think it's disconcerting. I think it's corners cutting. I think it's saving money and shaving money every way that they can for a lesser quality product. Um, and I think it's good that we're fighting for the protections now. Um, you know, my mother is a translator and, uh, you know, Google translate was a huge thing. I grew up in Italy, half here and, um, half in the States. And, uh, so she does legal and medical translations and Google translate was a huge, Thing for the translation industry. People thought it was going to completely 
disrupt it and destroy it, but it has only shifted it, right? Um, so, you know, a lot of what she does now is edit sort of the translations instead of doing the translations herself, right? Um, which I think is sort of the big fear on the writing side is here's our mediocre treatment that came out of AI. Can you edit it and make it better? And then we'll pay you yes. the script. Yes. And what you're really doing is just cutting away at writers potential to make a living and salaries. And again, just slicing away at corners. I think there's a, a massive existential threat when it comes to actors. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just saw it in the theater, Indiana Jones with my 11 year old son. And, um, it was, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's really astonishing that the first 25 minutes of the movie, we've got Harrison Ford aged down to his, you know, 30 year old self. And it is very convincing. It is very impressive. I was like, wow, that was a dramatic leap um, that I haven't really seen before quite done in this way. And for so long, it was very impressive. I was like, okay, this is how good it is. And this is the direction that we're heading with all this. You know, I had my heart in my throat a bit for what that does mean, you know, for actors. And I hope that we're able to get a good deal for both the writers and the actors around the AI side of things. I mean, we're, we're fighting for our human spirits. We're fighting for our souls really with this art form, you know, it's so important um, to do that. It's so important that we maintain the integrity of our own souls through the entire creative process, because it's just anything less is less. Um, I, I can't imagine that AI could write a parasite or a everything everywhere all at once. You know, this is that it comes out of our own human souls. And, and the pain of, of human experience, which I, I don't think can be recreated. I mean, uh, whether it evolves to there. And, and I mean, it's interesting now with like Sarah Silverman suing, and I think there's going to yes. be a lot more suits like that to follow that sort of maybe start establishing a precedent of what is okay and what isn't, because there's a way to look at it where it's not technology. It's really just copyright infringement, right? And uh and we should maybe just start talking about it like that instead of speaking of it as some kind of, you know, brilliant technological innovation when in fact it's just stealing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in a best case scenario, it's like a helpful friend. I've had a couple of AI experts on the show just to ask, you know, what is your perspective on this technology? And that has been what they have said is this is your assistant. This is your um, co-pilot who can help you and support you through this process. And um, for those who are listening who don't know in the writer's negotiation, it was like, okay, well, we're happy to have our helpful friend, but we have to be in charge of it. And then the studios came back with like, nope, <laughs> we're not even going to negotiate on that point, but we'll give you a meeting once a year with updates and technology. And that was like such a tip of the hat. It was like, oh boy, have they showed their hand here with the direction that they want all this to go. And at least amongst my friends who are writers and even myself going, oh, okay. So this thing that we thought was like, oh, maybe, you know, something we should be thinking about is like actually a really significant discussion point to become aware of. It was a hundred percent indicative of where they were going. Whenever they're dig their heels in the sand of like, no, we won't talk about that. It's like, okay, cool. So that's actually what you were planning to do. Great. Thanks for letting us know. Cool. 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 Thanks guys. Sneaky. Yeah. Sneaky sneaks. I know. Yeah. It's a, oh my gosh. I think that was, about that was similar to their, uh, they had the same thing on the, um, on the feature steps where they were like, we're going to ask executives to, um, attend meetings to learn about not asking writers for free work 
which was just laughable because literally every time I've gotten that phone call, it starts with, look, we know we can't ask you this, but like, <laughs> they know, <laughs> they know they don't need a meeting. Uh-huh. What we need are rules that protect us from doing that. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, it's true. It all really comes alive, you know, with the people who are involved in it, you know, that this is what we are drawn to with filmmaking. I am a novelist. I have written novels and you can go lock yourself in a room and write a novel. You don't need anybody else there until you get it to editorial or you get it to your agent and they say, Hey, like mine did at Harper Collins. I want more sex in the book. Great. I'll write you more sex scenes. What a fantastic and fun note. And I go back to my little room or my cafe and I write the sex scenes and I send the book back and that's it. And that process is a totally different process than film and television, where we have these relationships with others in the industry. We build something together that we're proud of together, that we celebrate uh, together. I know that's what pulled me back into it are the people, are the relationships, are, you know, the, this collaboration and the collaborative, you know, team spirit. Um, I, I'm curious, what, how have you been thinking about your career going forward, given that we're in, in a total work stoppage? You know, where does your heart go in the quiet moments for yourself about what you're hoping for for your own future? I mean, I, I've always been, um, very ambitious and my solution to times of trouble is, uh, you know, stay focused and keep on and don't sink down. Um, I think there were moments early on in the strike where I had kind of a big, um, emotional response to having to deal with like what was really at stake and um, what was at risk. I found great comfort in the line and hearing other people's stories on the picket line that really helped a lot. Um, I do think that, you know, I, I know a lot of WGA leadership has said this, but there has never been a strike where we haven't come out better on the other side. Um, I tell a lot of my students that too, uh, you know, that I think there's a lot of disheartened sense of like, oh, geez, I didn't realize this is the state of the industry. And I didn't realize, you know, but what I always tell them is like, it's not going to be any harder than it was, but at least when you get in, it's going to be a little bit better. Um, and that's, I guess, sort of the advice that I keep giving myself as well. Um, I'm writing, but I am always a proponent in writing. Just keep writing and keep writing and keep writing because it makes you better and it makes you better. Um, and then, you know, it's just like another shoe to sell. And, uh, so, you know, we've been doing that, which has been, um, a nice respite. So I'm, I am hopeful. I am hopeful for where it's going to go and what we can achieve. Um, I think, you know, the power of, of SAG is going to be pretty impressive. And, uh, and I think that stories, you know, I thought what Fran said today, when somebody asked, like, why do you think an average consumer cares about any of this? And her response was basically, well, like, why wouldn't they, or why are we assuming they won't care? Um, and I think that, I think there's a much greater awareness and support for, um, the worker and for what we do and for craftsmen and for storytellers. Um, and so I have faith in that. I love that. Let's leave it on the high note. (laughs) Alexa Alamani, where can people find you, follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's just at Alexa Alamani, um, or you can find me at Bad Pitch Writers Lab. Um, that's probably the easiest place either there on Instagram. That's where I am. I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure to meet you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
And remember to like, share, subscribe to the show, to this episode. Leave us a comment. We love your comments. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Wolfpack. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please help our pack grow by sharing Hollywood Wolfpack with your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and write us a review. Kaya loves hearing from you and reads them all. For more on Kaya and the Entertainment Business School, visit entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Until next week, remember, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack.